Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I am coming to you with a guest interview. This episode's guest is Dr. Emily Spleichel. Dr. Spleichel is a podiatrist, human movement specialist, and global leader in barefoot science and rehabilitation. Dr. Spleichel has developed a keen eye for movement dysfunction and neuromuscular control during gait. Originally trained as a surgeon through Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City and Mount Vernon Hospital in Mount Vernon, New York. In 2017, Dr. Spleichel put down her scalpel and shifted her practice to one that is built around functional and regenerative medicine. For this episode, we dove into foot and lower leg health quite a bit. Dr. Spleichel spoke about the role of sensory stimulation in creating proper motor patterns. This particularly important when it comes to foot health since it is our first point of impact when moving. So we discussed the importance of what your feet are touching as an important thing to consider alongside how strong your feet actually are. Dr. Spleichel targets this with her innovative product line at Naboso. If interested in what they are doing, you can check them out at naboso.com. She's offering listeners a 20% discount with the promo code HPO as well. Before we jump into the interview with Dr. Spleichel, a few upcoming guests include movement specialist Aaron Alexander, cardiologist Dr. Ethan Weiss shares what he believes is best practice for low-carbohydrate nutrition, and ultramarathon runner Nick Curry comes on the show to talk about his huge 2021 ultramarathon season where he was voted number two North American male ultramarathon runner by Ultra Running Magazine. Nick has some really interesting experiences with negative splitting races and just the pacing of these longer events in general and has followed a very wide variety of different nutritional approaches throughout his ultra running career, including a low carbohydrate approach. So we dove into that topic as well to see what his thoughts and takeaways are with using that as a nutritional approach for ultra marathon, ultra distance events. If you want to check out these interviews early and ad free, you can subscribe to the show's Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast or access it on the show's landing page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Show support goes a long way. If Patreon's not your preference, sharing, liking, and subscribing to the show on your favorite platforms also helps out a lot in growing the audience and reach of these episodes. So if you find one or the entire catalog that you like and you share it with your friends and family, that would be great. You can also make one-time donations at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Another great way to support the Human Performance Outliers podcast is through the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors has a product you'd like to check out, they can all be found along with the details and discounts at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Letting them know that you came to them through the HPO podcasts helps support the show. This episode's show sponsors include my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium Breakthrough has updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with absorption of magnesium. This now comes with their seven unique forms of organic full-spectrum magnesium, which can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add some extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. Bioptimizers continues to offer their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee, so you can test it out risk-free. If interested, let them know the HPO sent you by going to magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, for 10% off your next order order. Also supporting the show are my friends at Ice Barrel. Ice Barrel makes a sleek, compact, easy to use cold water immersion product so you can experience the benefits of cold therapy from the convenience of your home even if you don't have a lot of extra space. I actually just recently had to move mine. I had to make room for a nice new grill that I got so 
Uh, I needed to move the cold plunge to a different spot in the yard. It was pretty easy to drain. Move over there, refill up. You can just dump ice into it to bring the temp down or do what I like to do, which is keep some freezer packs in the freezer that you can pull out and stick back in there and kind of throw in when you need to drop the temperature down in the ice barrel a bit. The ice barrel is also something that I've been incorporating more often into my routine. My primary purposes are if I'm blocking workouts close together and want to help my body close the small gap between those two sessions. So an example of this would be if I do like a speed workout in the morning and then have a lower leg session later that afternoon. I like to hop in that ice barrel in between those sessions. I also enjoy hopping into cold water for the mood and brain function effects. When getting out of cold water, it sort of feels like a shot of caffeine. So if I'm feeling a bit sluggish, it is a quick, fun way to hit the reset button. Using the ice barrel makes this easy. Once filled with water, you can either add ice or, like I said, throw some freezer packs in there to keep that water nice and cold. Ice Barrel is offering $125 off your order for all HPO listeners. Just go to icebarrel.com forward slash HPO. That is I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com forward slash HPO. And it will automatically take $125 off your order. You can also enter promo code HPO if that works better for you. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And uh, today I have a guest interview and we're going to talk a bit about foot health. Thank you for taking some time, uh, Dr. Spiegel. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Awesome. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. I, I actually saw your booth at uh, the running event, I think. I was there with Ultra Footwear this year. Uh, I'm actually in Austin permanently now, but at the time I was coming in for, for the running event and uh, it looked like you guys had some pretty cool stuff going on over there around uh, foot health and foot mechanics. And for someone who's been in like kind of a natural footwear, foot strength side of things for the better part of my ultra marathon running career, it was kind of cool to see that side of the sport kind of get a little more attention. Yeah. So we are all about trying to bring foot health to the forefront, foot recovery. Recovery is super trendy right now, mm -hmm. but we want people to not just think recovery of the rest of their body, but obviously as a runner, your feet are taking a pounding. So we want people to make sure that they're focusing equally on their foot health and foot recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it's like the muscles in your lower legs, especially like your ankles and your feet, and then the proprioception down there is something I think like people should pay close attention to, but they often don't because it's just not something that like stands out until it does until you hurt yourself then, and then it becomes like a necessity. So it ends up kind of being like a reactive area versus a proactive area, I think in a lot of places. Uh, and one thing I was, I learned about kind of early on was just like those nerve endings on your feet and how sensitive they actually are which makes sense when you think about how like your body's going to operate, how that's kind of the first point of impact uh, or the touch point essentially. So can you just talk to us a little bit about kind of foot proprioception, like how that all works and why that's kind of an important thing to pay attention to? Absolutely. Favorite topic of mine. So <laughs> the, the skin on the bottom of the feet is packed with special nerves, nerves that you were starting to explain, and they are tactile or touch nerves. So they're actually a little bit different than what's called hairy skin. So your arms and your legs, your, your torso, the nerves on that skin, very different because it's obviously not touching the surfaces as you're navigating your body in space. So these tactile nerves in the bottom of the feet and technically the hands as well, the palm of the hands are continuously reading the environment in every step that we're taking. And there are four main stimuli that those nerves are sensitive to. The most prevalent one and the most well appreciated is going to be vibration. And why vibration is so important is that is actually how you perceive impact forces. So as you're running or you're walking and you strike the ground, those ground reaction forces are sensed by the brain, the nervous system as a vibration. That's the actual stimulus. And then we use vibration to match or mirror a loading response. And we use the vibration as energy to take your next step. Now, the other stimuli that the foot is sensitive to where these tactile nerves is skin stretch as well as texture. 
and all of the Naboso products. And what I really focus on in my career is texture or really it's two point discrimination. So that nerve is reading similar to the way that Braille. So your hand or your finger reading Braille stimulates the exact same nerve that all of the Naboso products stimulate, but in the feet. Interesting. Yeah. So it, I saw, uh, and I know you guys have a product that has like the little proprioception knobs in like a pair of socks. Uh, I've seen other, like I've seen shoes or inserts to shoes that kind of do the same thing where they put like, not just a flat liner in there, but one that has like little dimples on it. And I always thought that was kind of cool because it's like, you, you notice it when you first step on it, 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 it's almost like your feet just wake up when you step down versus them getting kind of like comfortable and complacent inside a pair of shoes. Yeah. All shoes, all shoes, even our favorite minimal shoes still create some degree of a sensory disconnect between the feet and the nervous system, because there's some element of cushion. You had mentioned that a lot of the sock liners or the insoles that people might be using have a smooth interface, a smooth surface. Um, people have socks on, obviously that's a barrier as well. So the more that you can bring stimulation into a shoe or closer to the foot, the better. And that's where I really do see sensory insoles as a space of really optimizing movement, preventing injury, enhancing recovery. It really is um, kind of the direction of where barefoot running, all the minimal shoes, that space is now the next wave of that would be saying, okay, how else can we innovate footwear and foot interfaces to influence the nervous system even more? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we talk about kind of like the vibration component to it, how big of a difference, because obviously the shoe is going to play a role in that, but also like the surface you're on, is there like some variance there? I know like basketball courts tend to have more of like a vibration-esque type of a platform to it versus uh, what I would guess like a concrete would have much less, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Is there a pretty big variance from one surface to the next there too? Absolutely. And people should really be thinking about the surfaces that they're moving on, running on, walking on in the exact way that you described it is every surface is designed to vibrate, or we want the surface to vibrate because the vibration is your body's potential energy. It's a stimulus to create motor movement responses. Now, based off of the material, every surface will vibrate differently. And oftentimes when I explain this is I'll say that you want you and the surface or your foot and the surface as you strike it to be symbiotic, which means here's my foot. It's striking the surface. You need both the foot your bones, your soft tissue, and the surface to vibrate. If that doesn't happen, and let's say you run on concrete, which does not vibrate, then you're striking it and you get this back reverberation into your body, your nervous system, your bones, et cetera. That can actually accelerate injury rate, tissue stress, loading response, things like that. So the best surfaces to be moving on you had already mentioned one like a basketball court. It's natural. It's wood, right? It vibrates. Um, dirt, trail, harder sand, soft sand is a slightly different, but harder sand. Um, and you're really looking at always trying to keep that symbiotic relationship. Um, one for the runners that they might not realize is that indoor tracks. So indoor oh, yeah. tracks are actually tuned to the vibration at which our muscles vibrate. And that, that tuning is based off of sound is vibration when you tune a piano, right? So you could kind of think of that or you're tuning an instrument. Think of that same thing is that it's just based off of the frequency, sound, vibration. And we want to tune our body as well to the vibration of the surface that we're running on or walking on. Interesting. Is there, is this similar then to like when you get into some of these other environments like trails or beach sand or something like that, where you get this like varied terrain and then your foot strike is going to just have a lot more like variance, I guess, in it versus running on a flat stretch of concrete or road where it's going to be fairly uniform every time. Does that play into the vibration tour? Is that just like kind of a, just a more well-rounded like stimulation to the muscle areas in your like ankles and feet? Yeah. So I always favor more the trail, irregular. You have to pay attention. Um, there was actually an interesting research study that compared 
flat concrete running or road running versus the irregularity or uncertainty inconsistency of trail running. And it compared then the cognitive and the attention of the runner after doing one versus the other. And they saw that the trail running, because you have to be aware, present, you're kind of looking at what you're running on, right? There's this, this forced being present um, actually increased the memory recall, short-term memory recall immediately after running, which is really cool to see that stimulus. And how could we use that perhaps in you know cognitive training and things like that? But I always favor inconsistencies because that's really what the nervous system is based off of is not same consistent flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this kind of feeds into a little bit of just like the, the mobility and the strength of that lower leg area. Cause I find like when I'm spending a lot of time running on trails and varied terrain, it's so the activity itself almost takes care of it to some degree. I definitely notice like I'm stronger in those areas than if I'm preparing for a race, that's a little more like controlled surface, like a track or a road or something like that. And I'm doing a lot of flat running. If I'm not like addressing that stuff outside of that, activity where I'm not getting it kind of built in. I'll notice like my ankle mobility starts to lose its range of motion a little bit. And my, I get like different weaknesses in certain areas of the lower leg and ankle, the way I wouldn't, if I'm running on that varied terrain is, is that something that you're seeing typically with, with runners or athletes? And if so, are there things that they can or should be doing, uh, proactively to avoid a situation of getting like a little too uniform and they're running on these flat surfaces, like city streets and things like that? Yes. So the trail running that you were referencing and kind of the irregularity, the effect that you notice on the strength of your foot muscles and your lower leg muscles, all of that completely makes sense because of really the perturbation that you're putting your foot and your ankle through kind of like being on like a mini wobble board. It's, it goes through a lot more inversion, eversion, and in a safe way, right? Um, These micro perturbations and moving the foot inversion, eversion while running on a trail is really a great way to strengthen your foot. If you're on a very consistent surface with a very consistent required degree of inversion, eversion, anytime you start to deviate out of that controlled range, then the nervous system freaks out. People can um, overcorrect. And then that's where you can actually see injuries. Um, which kind of goes back to still stimulate the nervous system in a variety of ways. Now, if someone does primarily road and consistent, smooth surface running, then I still encourage people to do some sort of, I'll call it perturbation training. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the Arex pad and unstable surfaces because they throw the ankle into what's called large nerve responses, which are actually slower. However, if you are going to do wobble board, Dynadisc, Bosu, any of those, I would say do them barefoot. So you still wake up those nerves and you're getting that combination of plantar foot stimulation and sensory feedback with the large nerve perineal reaction time, it's called. Um, Generally, I try to keep people off of unstable surfaces unless it could be in a micro perturbation way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems like, uh, because I think this kind of carries into some other things too. I know like the knees over toes programming and things like that, that's getting more popular now is I think there's like application for that stuff, but it's definitely something you have to like do the right way and ease into it. Whereas I think a lot of people, they're like, oh, this is cool. This is this new thing. I'm going to jump right in. And they're doing like a full weight bearing program right out the gate when really they need to start with like very small, like ranges of motion where they're barely even probably pushing past their, their normal form until they get comfortable with that. And then gradually adding more over time versus like, like maybe what you described jumping on that balance form balance board first day and putting yourself through these really big ranges of motions when you're just not quite ready for it. So is there like a kind of like, there's a point where you recognize this is this enough stimulation for me right now to adapt. And I need to get used to this before I progress it further. Um, I mean, I just try to tell people to progress 
slowly and oftentimes slower than a majority of people want to progress. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm used to, I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. So I know people who are active, such as probably all of your listeners, you yourself, we like to just push ourselves, you know, further, right? Like the, it's the challenge or the competitive nature within ourselves is, you know, can I go all the way over and do what I saw someone do on Instagram or something? (laughs) But because I see people injured, I get to see the other side of it, of them going a little bit too aggressively. And, you know, I've just kind of seen the nature of the way that connective tissue works in adults, especially past a certain age is, you know, our, the elasticity of our connective tissue is just very different from, you know, when it was when we were in our early twenties. So, you know, small doses, small load consistently is actually going to allow you to proceed faster into, let's say a skill if if we're talking about knees over toes and some of those movements, doing it, you know, controlled repetition daily with gradual increases is going to actually garner much more benefit than, you know, too much too soon or going all the way right away. Mm -hmm. I think the quote is, uh, the, the fastest way to get somewhere is to go slow. (laughs) So it's like you avoid the big pitfalls and then you get there quicker anyway, even though it may feel like you're growing at a snail's pace out the gate. So, um, it's a good, good message to follow. I think for the runners out there, generally speaking as much as anything, but, um, one thing I was going to ask that you mentioned is that list, the elasticity of, uh, of like our, our tendons and ligaments is that, that, is that something that's just going to happen no matter what, as we age, are there things you can kind of do to kind of preserve that elasticity as you get older? And it's just something you have to kind of program in as you age versus, not having to do as much of it when you're younger, or is it just like, you're going to have to manage this at some point, uh, and, and then kind of deal with, uh, your new, your new body, so to speak. (laughs) Yes. So the big thing with elasticity and really connective tissue elasticity is everything about how we in all of our movements, but if you want to keep it around running, run, effortlessly or lightly kind of like you're floating. I always give the analogy of like a cat or a dancer that there's this element of grace in the movements or childlike. Um, Obviously that's based off of your connective tissue elasticity. Now, a lot of the things that change connective tissue elasticity is age. Of course, age is partly related to the changing composition of the collagen. Uh, Women are a little bit different in how our connective tissue changes compared to men because of hormone changes. Estrogen, as estrogen drops, we actually lose a lot of connective tissue integrity. So I will see a lot of increases in post-tib issues in women who are postmenopausal. So for any of the listeners who are women and kind of the hormones are changing, that's something that's important. Um, obviously there's overall dehydration. If you have uncontrolled blood sugar and you get a lot of glycation to your connective tissue, then that can cause a lot of kinks or cross-linking stiffness we'll say stiffness. So it's taking it away. Some of that, there's a natural age-related accumulation of glycation or free radicals or oxidation, however you want to call it, right? So that's part of the age-related as well. Um, Some things that people can do is, you know, bone broth is huge, right? People are looking at, okay, how can I protect my collagen and my connective tissue? There's um, different hydration components, obviously literally keep yourself hydrated. So you, your tissue stays hydrated. Um, doing myofascial work is really good because it it acts like you're almost wringing out a rag. And every time you kind of go back and forth between wringing out the rag, you are then bringing fluid to it. Um, I'm very much into lymphatic work to support connective tissue work. So those are some big, big things things. And I've never taken the mantra of no pain, no gain. So (laughs) try not to take that. Maybe when I was a teenager or early twenties, you know, I'd push through it. Of course I got injured, but you know, no pain, no gain is something that once you get your first injury, it's almost like opening Pandora's box and it just 
things start to unravel a little bit. Um, and I don't want it to be, you know, that experience for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it can be kind of a chain reaction too, I think, because if you're not used to being injured, you, you didn't, sometimes people just don't know what to do. So like they have this injury and they're like, well, I'm going to push through it. No pain, no gain. Right. And, uh, then they end up uh, favoring a different area of their body. And then maybe the one thing they heard originally starts clearing up and also something else pops up and then they have another imbalance. And it's just like kind of becomes a series of whack-a-mole trying to like take care of all these things that with just uh, a little bit of uh, kind of stepping back and letting the, the original issue to, or addressing the original issue, I should say, would have cleared up all the following ones. Yeah. And then just kind of accept that, you know, if you did have an injury, I consider them like monkey wrenches. Like it's just like a little monkey wrench that kind of unravels. It's going to show up every once in a while and start talking to you. So, you know, just pay mind to it, do some extra release work. Maybe don't push so hard or, you know, consider the surfaces that you're on, you know, things like that. It's, it becomes very multifactorial. And then also the more that someone understands their body, which is why I'm such an advocate of putting education out on the internet and doing podcasts and writing blogs and things like that is that I really want the end user individual to be empowered to understand their body and to know what limits they can push and then how to really optimize, you know, their health, wellness, recovery, performance, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I always find interesting is if I hurt something or I'm working with someone that hurt, is hurting something, they go and they see a physical therapist or a doctor and they, they have like, they get the professional diagnosis. It always seems like the area that actually caused the problem is nowhere near the spot that hurts. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and as you know, as intuitively you think, okay, well, this area hurts. That's the area I need to work on. Is there, uh, is there any like kind of like big, mover muscles that are more directly impacted by like poor foot strength that stand out to you that typically end up causing problems if people have weak feet? I would say definitely the knees, knees, hips, lower back. Those would be, would be the big ones, obviously because of the kinetic kinematic influences. Um, For any of the listeners, if they don't feel or appreciate the connection of the feet. I'll just have people stand up and then just roll from the outside of their feet to the inside of their feet. And they should be able to see or feel that the whole leg is rotating with that, that movement, that integrated movement is really how we transfer energy and stress up the body. Um, Probably the most common is that flat foot over pronation where you're just collapsing a little bit it makes the foot slower. So when I look at anything that relates to the human body feet movement, I'm factoring in timing. So what is the timing or the rate at which you feel the ground or you stabilize from the ground up your foot to core talking to each other, your glute activation. All I care about is the rate, the timing in flatter feet or over pronation, they're just a little slower. So that's going to deviate this timing that I was just referencing. Um, and then that can lead to knee, hip, lower back, SI joint issues. It actually could go all the way up the body as well. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include my friends at Bioptimizers and Ice Barrel. Bioptimizers is featuring their magnesium supplement and Ice Barrel is featuring their cold water immersion product. You can find details, links, and discounts at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors or in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned over pronation, which I think is one where runners typically hear a lot from is like, they'll hear I'm an over pronator and I need to do this, that, or the other thing to correct it. And I was once told that it's not necessarily the over pronation. That's the problem, but it's like the way that it's done or the reason it's being done that could potentially be a problem. Is that, uh, am I heading in the right direction with that? Or is if is or if you overpronate, is that something you should proactively try to correct? Uh, so pronation in general is good. We all need to pronate, right? <laughs> so that's kind of that rolling inward as part of the loading response. Um, it's how you decelerate your foot. The overpronation, how I look at it is, what is the type? So there's actually different types. Is it... Uh, a ligament laxity. If it's a ligament laxity, 
that is very hard to control through muscular engagement because of the nature of the connective tissue. We were just talking about you know, connective tissue where it was more on the side of people losing some of their range of motion because of cross-linking and stickiness. Ligament laxity on the other side is very different where someone with a ligament lax over pronation and a midfoot drop is just gravity in their body weight is just blowing through that foot. And there, there's no way you can get your posture tibialis to try to like, er, like be the break fast enough or strong enough. So those may be runners that look at a runner specific orthotic possibly, right. That they could try strengthening first. The other type that is more of a weakness associated over pronation Typically, you will not see that in the midfoot. You'll see that in the rear foot. And that's where you can see research showing six to eight weeks of glute strengthening can decrease overpronation in the rear foot by the same degree that an orthotic does. So I'll push those individuals to doing focused, you know, glute meet, glute max, deceleration training of the glutes. So then they can try to control that rear foot pronation. So I think part of it is really understand the type of pronation versus putting it in a bucket. And then you throw in the injuries on top of that. If you have an injury history, that's kind of controlling or influencing this as well, then that would have to be factored in as well. And the distance that people are running. So all have some runners who may have a little bit of rear foot over pronation. They can run a certain distance and then pass a certain mileage they just start to fatigue their connective tissue and the muscles. So maybe shorter runs, they're fine without an orthotic, longer runs, they do something a little bit more supportive shoe or the orthotic in it. Um, so that's where it becomes very personalized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing that I learned when I kind of looked into kind of minimalist running and minimalist footwear and stuff earlier in my career was just, there is like, ultimately like, I think you want really strong lower legs and feet and a lower profile shoe is going to be a, an option to get you there if you do it kind of gradually enough, but it's also a scenario where there are events and a limit to where like your body's just like, all right, I need a little help here. And then if you want to, if you have a specific thing, like a race that's longer or harder than what you would typically train for, sometimes those resources, like you know, a different type of shoe or insert can be helpful for that sort of thing to kind of get you past your body's like current comfort zone. And I think when you start looking at these things as tools versus like kind of everyday crutches is when most people start kind of heading in the right direction. Um, does that sound like uh, reasonable to you? Yep. hundred percent. We're talking the same language here, right? <laughs> Perfect. To know, to know the appropriateness of perhaps a style of shoes or where the arch support could come in. And a majority of my patients and my following is very pro-minimal, pro-barefoot because of what I advocate. But I still want people to understand that, you know, possibly because of their foot type or injury history, at a certain distance, they might need an arch support and that that's okay. I don't want people to feel like they failed the system or they failed their body because they are using an arch support on, you know, a certain distance and not, not take it like they're doing something wrong. And I feel sometimes that's what happens within that space is that we want to represent what that means to have natural foot strength. And then if you, have to get a little bit more cushion in your shoes. Don't, don't think that it is, you know, the be all end all and you failed, right. There's Mm -hmm. a time and place for it. And then maybe you can still wear the minimal shoes on shorter runs or a different, uh, situation. So yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe it's kind of like going so literally. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like going into the weight room, right? Like you, you, like if I went, if I wanted to improve, uh, like my, my squat, I could go to the gym and squat every day, but there's a margin of diminishing return somewhere there where I'm not going to make progress because I don't have the recovery portion of that program dialed in right. But Mm -hmm. if I go and do two or three times a week, you know, I'm probably going to make steady progress because I've really maximized that stress component and then the recovery component to match up a little more nicely. Yep. hundred percent. I want to talk a little bit about toes too. So like, one thing the way it was described to me is like when you're running or jumping, so this could be like a variety of different sports, 
when you kind of like push off and get that forward momentum or upward momentum, you're powering a lot of that or you're channeling a lot of that power through your big toe. Um, is, uh, first of all, is that accurate? And then second of all, how does that get impacted with things like bunions or restrictive footwear in the sense that it's going to like create an environment where that big toe gets kind of pushed inward? Yeah. So toe strength is really what we're referencing and the power position of the foot is called a rigid lever. So if you think about doing a calf raise, right. And if, if the listeners do a calf raise and they stay in the calf raise and they look at their foot and say like, okay, that position is called a rigid lever. That is the most important position that the human foot can get into. And it's because of as the name says, lever, that access point across your MPJs is really unleashing all of the power that you stored when you were striking the ground and absorbing the vibration. The way that we optimize power output in a lever is that you need to be pulling your toes into the ground. So toes anchor energy out, right? So there's this opposition of energy that's happening simultaneously. If you do not have a lot of strength pulling down, it's kind of analogous to jumping off of a a surfboard into the water versus the dock (laughs) or trying to run on ice (laughs) versus having the friction of the ground. Right. So that understanding is really important. There's a lot of focus around the big toe because of short foot exercise. If the listeners are familiar with that and just kind of the foot physical therapy foot space that's out there really big toe, big toe, big toe connects to glutes. The big toe is super important, but you really want to have a stable lever across all five MPJs. So I make sure that people are not becoming really great toe dominant, that we need all five digits working in unison. They're technically innervated by the same nerve extensor hallucis longus is chilling right next to the extensor digitorum longus. So they need to be working together. So that's, that's the power that I try to create. Now, bunions are obviously very unique to the big toe and that can start to, um, I consider it an energy leak. So if you have this energy leak, when you're trying to push through your lever, you're obviously not going to be as optimal in your power. So to try to offset that, I love toe spacers. I'm obsessed with them because it helps people to keep a lever across all five digits and keep that uniform, long, straight digit propulsive arm, if that's making sense to the listeners. Um, Also making sure that the foot is strong. The rear foot strength greatly influences the digit strength. So it really kind of starts to hit one part of the foot will influence the next and then influence the last part of the foot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The toe spacers are interesting to me. Is that something that is going to essentially put all those toes in a position where they can't really lean on one another as much and individually activate a little better since they're separated like that? Or is there something else going on there from like a stretching out component? Uh, Well, so there's the benefit that you had said. So yes, it is saying, okay, let's all be uniformed in our activation and have our associated pressure or weight that we're supposed to carry. When you have something in between your digits, you give a mechanical advantage to the intrinsic muscles, the bottom of the foot muscles. So that is great. It's obviously creating a a straighter lever arm through which you're moving. But then yes, there's the benefit of your stretching the small muscles and the connective tissue in the forefoot. Um, that's how I would use toe spacers as recovery for performance. It would be more long, straight digits, longer lever arm straight across the MPJs, mechanical advantage to the intrinsics. Good. Check, check, check. Right. From the recovery, I want to stretch the muscles, the connective tissue, actually your plantar fascia inserts into your toes. So by stretching your toes, you stretch your plantar fascia, which is good. And then opening up the digits, you're also supporting the lymphatic and the circulatory side of recovery as well. Interesting. Is there, is there like a protocol with toe spacers as to like how long to wear them at a given time? Or is it just like put them on and have them on as long as you can tolerate them? 
Yeah. So the more, the better. A lot of people I find need to gradually work up to that because it becomes a little annoying having something in between the digits. So if that is the case for the, for the listener, then I would say, okay, if you could start by having it at the end of the day, maybe for an hour when you're relaxing or cooking dinner, things like that. So it's fit into the day you're adjusting to it. Okay. After that, could you try to wear them in your shoes? If the shoes can accommodate them, then that's great. Especially if they do have a bunion start that way. Okay, great. Uh, don't go for a run with them yet. <laughs> not there yet. I was going to um, ask about that. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Uh, that would be jumping way too soon. Um, but if you feel fine walking around in them, how do you feel when you work out in them? And that workout could be yoga, right? It could be a yoga flow for yoga for runners, whatever it is, or it could be, you know, I'm doing my lunges and squats and kettlebells and whatever the workout could be. Then if you're like, check, check, check all those, I'm good. Then doing a small run first, don't go your full distance with them. Um, because the thing that we do when there's a stimulus that is new is we do these weird subconscious intelligent movements and we don't realize it. So I don't want a runner or a listener to actually be picking the foot up quicker than they should be because of the sensation of the toe spacer at their forefoot. And I've seen that. And as soon as you start to enter the swing phase too early, now you've thrown off the timing of the entire mechanics of your gait. So that's where I would proceed slow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then how uh, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned some, some stuff with that, where, where the connection stuff, I'm interested in kind of like the calf muscle too. Cause the, it was explained to me that, you know, runners oftentimes probably aren't formed with like just doing like a basic kind of like calf stretch on either like a, like a wedge or a curb or a stair or something like that. And if you're kind of just straight leg stretching, you're really only addressing half of that muscle the way I was explained. But then if you kind of get yourself in a little bit more of a bent knee position and stretch, you can kind of hit the other spot. So how does that play? And then if we carry that into strength work, are there different types of like lower leg strength work for specifically calves that you'd want to do differently to be targeting those different areas the same way you would with stretching? Yeah. So what you are describing of the leg straight versus knee partially bent is based off of the anatomy of the calf muscle, which is made off of the gastrocnemius. And then below it is going to be your soleus gastrocnemius is a little bit different in origin from the soleus in that it's above your knee. So it crosses the knee joint, which is going to influence this. Oh, if I bend my knee, I'm going to take the gastrocnemius out of the picture. And now it's the soleus that is doing the ankle movement, right? The ankle action. Now, a fun fact for the listeners is that between the two muscles, gastroc and soleus, the one that is actually stronger on the ankle is your soleus. So power at the ankle and power at push off that is soleus 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 a lot of people love to strengthen the gastroc or focus on the gastroc because it's everyone wants nice calves right <laughs> <laughs> there's shape to it that beautiful kind of teardrop of the gastroc of the two heads but really it's the soleus muscle that's the powerhouse is that's the muscle that's decelerating the pronation it's also accelerating supination or resupination into that rigid lever. So I put a lot of my focus on the soleus, um, but then also what is hanging out and working with these two muscles, which is, I would argue more important is your posterior tibialis Mm -hmm. and a runner needs to be able to do a single heel raise because running is really a series of single leg hops in a sense, right? So single leg calf exercises, I'm using calf in quotation because really they're uh, rigid lever exercises or ankle plantar flexion exercises, which as soon as you go onto one leg, it's really not your calf anymore. It's post-tib and post-tib is that rapid supinator or kind of powerhouse of the foot and the ankle. So the way that I would upgrade or shape or structure posterior exercises would be instead of doing a bilateral calf raise. So two legs at the same time, heel raise calf raises. um, I would switch them 
to be single leg because a single leg is much more functional. You are hitting a different muscle. Um, if you do want to do bilateral, one of my favorite exercises is put a ball between your heel. So the ball's between the heel and you're driving your heels into the ball as you're doing this calf raise. What you're doing, as soon as you drive your heels into that ball, boom, you just kicked on post-tib. And we want to be making sure that ankle plantar flexion is posterior tibialis, not necessarily the calves that are pushing you through that. Um, I like to change tempo. I like to do high repetitions. Um, I like to weight them. If I do weighted ankle plantar flexion exercises, I like it with a weighted vest or a rucksack versus holding something because I, I don't want to necessarily load that asymmetrically in a sense, because part of a single heel raise is I need you holding on something. It's not a balance exercise. I need you holding on to something. Um, then can you step off of a curb and do, or a box at the gym and do a deceleration single leg. So you're stepping down and you're going to go ball heel, ball heel. That's the way that you're obviously rolling through the foot when you step down. As soon as you step down, that deceleration is a really good training mechanism for the posterior tibialis, especially for midfoot strikers. Bounding, there's another one. Bounding, great exercise for midfoot strikers or those that are trying to transition from heel to midfoot. Mm -hmm. How much of that sort of stuff plays into shin splints? I know most runners that I talk to have had some sort of experience with shin splints. When I used to coach high school track, it seemed like as soon as we get them out on the track, when the snow melted, it would be like a series of the kids would get some sort of shin splint issue at one point in time, which in hindsight, I look at as possibly like weak tibialis muscles, but is there more going on there that I'm missing? Uh, yes. So it is definitely linked to the tibialis muscles, post-tib, tibant. Um, it really is a vibration-based injury. So impact forces, vibration, the way that we stop or control the vibration so that we absorb it as energy is the muscles have to contract very rapidly in an isometric mechanism. If they have overpronation, then obviously that's going to slow the timing of those muscles stiffening um, back to season, right? So they're, they weren't running for a period. Now they're ramping back up. So it's kind of that early into season injury because of just a decondition, right? So there could probably be for that transition, a like a preseason program that the students do if they would do it <laughs> if the high school students would be compliant and do it, but something that is just trying to train that isometric because it's a very rapid contraction that it's easy to lose that skill if it's not done consistently. Um, and then that would help to offset it. Um, that's where using the compression sleeves, um, I've actually advised some high school track in the Midwest where when they would start season, it would still be snowing. Mm -hmm. So they're like, Oh, the only thing that we can do is run down the high school hallway. And I'm like, Oh my God, you are on <laughs> tile and concrete. <laughs> like no wonder your entire, you know, team has chin splints. Right. So just mm -hmm. saying like, okay, maybe we don't even need to run. We could cross train and do things in the gym or use the sleeves or do isometrics and do, you know, other types of things. But you know, it's definitely a reality of that back to season injury mm -hmm. because of the deconditioned timing of that muscle. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see like what, uh, what kind of like percentages there would be for that sort of an injury. And like you said, like in the Midwest where you're going from winter to summer or spring or, or also just like students who are athletes outside of just, you know, track and cross country maybe. And they don't have this like down season in the middle of winter where, you know, maybe they're playing basketball or something like that in the, in the winter and still kind of engaging that area on a, I guess a basketball court would be a vibrating surface. So possibly an, a, a really good spot to do it. And then also some lateral movement would maybe be helpful in just engaging their body in a more holistic way than the more linear ma manner of, of running. But it would be cool to see how all that different sort of stuff impacts that kind of early spring injury scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I like that. Awesome. Um, yeah, I, you know, this has been great 
great stuff to talk about. I think, uh, you know, the foot and ankle are just super interesting areas because it's like, that's that first part that grabs the ground when you're running. And then those impact forces, the way I explain it is like those impact forces are going to go somewhere regardless of what you try to do. So the key then is making sure they're distributed in the right ways, the way your body's kind of built to kind of tolerate that. So, uh, it's always good to hear from, from someone like yourself who can kind of shed some light on a little bit more intimately about how and why those things are working. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Yeah. And before, before I let you go, uh, if you want to let the listeners know where they can find you, if you're active on social media, uh, your website and things like that, I'm sure some of them are going to want to check out some of the information you have. Yeah. So my Instagram, my personal one is um, at DREmilyDPM. So DREmilyDPM. That's my personal Instagram. I make it very educational. So tons of foot information on there. And then Naboso's Instagram is Naboso underscore technology. And Naboso is N-A-B-O-S-O underscore technology. Um, the Naboso website for all of our products is Naboso.com. And then my podiatry page is just my name, which I'm sure they'll see the spelling Perfect. <laughs> on the show notes. Yeah, but it's, it's um, I see virtual patients uh, all around the world. And it's something that I love to do is, is help through uh, my functional podiatry practice. Excellent. Well, definitely put those links in the show notes. So for folks who want to check out more can, can head over there and, and click through that. But thank you so much, Dr. Emily, for taking some time and hopping on the show. Of course. Thank you again. Take care. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.